Well, good morning once again, uh, and welcome to those here at the Y, those online at home. Uh, we're glad you're here with us today. My name is Gray. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at LFCD. And as Emma referenced, Serve Day is next Sunday. We're excited about, uh, excited about that, looking forward to serving in our community. As she said, you can fill out your, uh, your sign-up cards if you're here in person and drop them in the baskets. These baskets will be here every week moving forward. You can put your, your Serve Day cards in there this week. But again, moving forward, you could put your prayer requests in there. Any tithes and offerings you have can go in those baskets. But serve day next Sunday, but today we are continuing on in this sermon series that we have called The Story, where we've been working through the Bible throughout the course of the entire year. And today we are on our 27th Sunday, so we are officially over the halfway mark, if you can believe it. And we are picking up, yes, we are picking up in the book of Esther. But before we get there... A brief recap, and the thing about these recaps is the further we get in the year, the longer and more complicated these recaps get. So you'll see that they'll get more and more abbreviated, but I will, I will quickly catch us up. So you will remember that the story began in the book of Genesis, where God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and he, including man and woman, and he looked at it all and said that it was very good. In the situation there, things were good. Uh, humanity was invited to trust with God, live with God, and trust that God would be enough. Uh, this became a struggle, and, and we'll see this struggle continue throughout the, source, uh, the, the stretch of the story. Uh, the this, this struggle to believe that God was good and that what God had for them was good. And so man and woman are kicked out of the garden. And, and, and so the story then goes from, from a good life with God to uh, the story becomes a rescue story where God is seeking to reconcile and restore this broken relationship with humanity. And this story begins with a man named Abraham. And Abraham's family, Abraham is told that he and his descendants will be a blessing to the nations. And so Abraham's family grows and it becomes a nation. And this nation grows and it moves into a land that God directs them towards. And this land, again, it grows into this nation, which one day decides it wants to be ruled by a king. And so the, the, the Israelites get a king, and the struggle with these kings is similar to the struggle that we saw in the garden, the struggle to trust that God was good and that God would give them what they needed, and a struggle to be a part of this redemption and restoration story, a struggle going all the way back to the call to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Some of these kings were good, but we, we see many of them use the resources and position that God has given them not to be a blessing to the nations and to the world, but to be a blessing unto themselves. And so again, these kings go from being a, a, a part of God's story, uh, not even just to not being a part of God's story, but many of them are actively working against this story to be a blessing to the nations. And so God sends prophets, people like Nathan, Samuel, Hosea, to come to these kings and to wake, shake them awake about these ways Again, that they are being the anti-story. And these prophets have some success, uh, but again, we see the Israelites moving farther and farther away from the plan that God has for them. And so God ultimately allows them to be conquered. Uh, one of the reasons being, um, God hopes that if everything is stripped away from them, maybe then they will come back to the original story and, and believe and see that God is enough. And so Michael mentioned there's this acronym ABP because there are three conquering nations that take them over. ABP, so first it's the Assyrians. And then the Assyrians come in, and then the Babylonians come and take over the Assyrians. And you might remember the Babylonians from last week, we talked about Daniel. Daniel and, and his guys got 
exile during the Babylonian exile. Following the Babylonians, we have the Persians. And if you're still with me now, we've arrived around the time of the book of Esther. So you'll remember the Babylonians, you had Nebuchadnezzar, the king, and and the Babylonians ruled kind of in a a heavy-handed, top-down, get-with-the-program, fully assimilate into Babylonian culture, or else we're going to kill you type mentality. And, And the Persians were a little bit different. Persians were more like, you can kind of do your thing where you are, as long as you're paying your taxes and not causing too much trouble. A lot of ways, similar to kind of how the Romans would rule later, uh, but you're a part of this great, huge Persian empire. And at the time of the Persians, they were the mightiest empire on earth. And, and so the book of Esther takes place in this city called Susa, and it's a major city in the Persian empire, and it's in modern day Iran. And there's a question on the mind of, of many people in Susa, Uh, including Esther, Um, and it's a question that many of us are asking today. And it's a question ultimately about purpose. What and, for what and why am I here? Because again, many of these Jews in Susa uh, had still lived in Susa. I forgot to mention, when the Persians took over, they allowed everyone who'd been exiled, all the Jews, to go back to Israel. And many of them did, but many of them stayed in Persia. Many of them stayed where they'd kind of set up their new lives and things like that. And so, so many of them are, are wondering, did I do the wrong thing, not going back? So they're here in this foreign land, kind of living as this minority community, but wondering again, what are we supposed to be doing? And I think many of us ask that same question too. Here, here in this place, in this time, what are we supposed to be doing? And thankfully, the book of Esther has something to say about that. So now, we'll jump right into the story. One of the best things about the book of Esther is that it's, it's, it's a great story. And so I will tell you piece by piece and make a few comments along the way. But the story opens with a great party. What a great way for a story to begin. The story opens with a great party. King Xerxes is throwing this big bash. You can think about it like if you've seen The Great, great Gatsby, like just a totally over-the-top, opulent, spared-no-expense type party that goes on for months at a time. And one, Xerxes is the king. Again, he does this because he can and he's rich, but also there's a purpose behind it. He gets all these regional leaders. Remember I said Persia kind of operates by letting people do their thing in different areas? They'll have these big parties every so often to bring everyone together and be like, wow, the king sure is great. Look, look how, uh, how good my life is by being a loyal subject of this king. So it's a way to consolidate power and also kind of showcase the splendor of of the, the empire. But more than anything, it's to showcase the power and the might of the king. And so the conflict arises uh, on one of these nights in the party where the king's had a little too much to drink. And he, he's got all his guys around, uh, all his lackeys from the other regions. And he's like, guys, uh, let me show you something really cool. I'm gonna have my wife come in here. She's beautiful. I don't know if you've seen her yet, but I have her come in here and, uh, and, show, and I'll just want to show you how pretty she is. He's a really good guy. Uh, and, uh, and so he sends some of his servants in there to, to go get the queen. Her name is Vashti. And he directs the servants to tell her, make sure you wear your crown. And it's kind of insinuated uh, in the text that this, this meant maybe only wear your crown. So basically he was telling his wife to come in and do some form of striptease or something like that for all these guys. Yeah, I just said striptease. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and so 
the, uh, the servants go and talk to Vashti, this queen, and she's like, nah, not going to do it. She was ahead of her time. Nah, not going to do it. And so the servants come back and they're like, hey, boss, uh, Queen Vashti said no, again, in front of all his guys. And remember, the whole point of this thing is to show how the king's powerful and mighty. And here he's getting showed up by his wife. And so the guys are like, man, king, that's embarrassing. But two, like, and this, this is actually what happened. I'm not making this, this is not a joke. They're like, man, if word gets out that she said no to you and you're the king, then all our wives back home might say no to us. Uh, and that's not good for anyone. Uh, yeah, not, not a good scene, not a good look. Uh, for the rulers in Persia. So they say, you got to get rid of Vashti. Uh, if you've watched the VeggieTales episode of Esther, uh, Vashti is deposed because she refuses to make uh, the king a sandwich. Uh, similar idea, showing up the king there in his court. <clears throat> uh, so anyways, Vashti gets deposed. And again, all this sets the stage to, to there's this empty seat for the queen in the greatest empire in the land. And so some years go by, uh, and, and Xerxes gets lonely, and his advisors say, hey, I think it's time to find a new queen. And so he starts this big contest, uh, per his advisor's request. And this contest, <clears throat> in VeggieTales, it's like a, a talent show, essentially. But this was not a talent show. This was a, a contest where women from all over the empire, young women, would be brought in, uh, we could assume not voluntarily, and they would be prepared for one entire year for one night with the king. It's kind of like, I heard one pastor compare it to like American Idol meets The Bachelor meets The Hunger Games. Because many of these women, again, they, they would join the king's harem and only one of them would be chosen and she'd become the queen. Presumably this would work okay for her. But some of them would occasionally get an audience with a king, but many of them would kind of just be destined to this anonymous forgotten life in the harem, and, and they couldn't go back home. And, and so again, it was a tragic and kind of excruciating contest, far more than a, than a beauty pageant. But anyways, we learn that our heroine Esther enters or is entered, we can assume, into this contest. And a little bit about Esther. Um, Esther has... Uh, no mother or father. We know she's, she's an orphan. And she's under the, under the care of her uncle, a man named Mordecai. And Mordecai's a, a faithful Jew. And, and so Mordecai's watching over her. And so Esther enters this contest. And every day, Mordecai uh, meets with Esther kind of in the, in the palace courtyard to just see how she's doing and to remind her of Scripture and things like that and to encourage her. And so the, the contest goes on, and we see that Esther wins the contest. We don't know exactly how, but we read that she pleased the king. And we'll see in becoming queen that God had a big role for her. But for me, at least, when I, when I got to this point in the story, I had to pause and ask a question. What do we make of, of Esther, um, this faithful Jewish girl? Like, has the, the compromises that she's made to get to where she is, has that put her on the sideline of God's story? Has that marginalized her for what God might do through her? And again, that sounds kind of harsh because many of this she didn't do by choice. Um, but but many, many critics would say, um, you know, she knew all the Jewish law that Mordecai had drilled into her head. And yet, certainly, 
she knew some of the things she had to do to win this contest were wrong, but she did them anyways. Others will criticize and say, she, in, instead of kind of rebelling and sticking to her ethical principles, she joined the oppressors. She joined the royal family. She entered the palace and became a part of the occupiers. So what are we to do with Esther? Especially, you know, you, you compare her with, with Daniel. Um, we read about these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three guys, and we have a, a verse of what happened with them uh, coming up here from Daniel 3. But basically, in, in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar built this great gold idol and said, anytime a horn blows, you need to bow down to this golden image. And they said, we got that slide ready? Um, yeah, so I will read it here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, when, he, when they were told that they needed to bow to this image. For if you're... Oh, yes, but if not, be it known. Basically, he says, if our king, if our... Uh, he says that, excuse me, God can save us. He is able to help us survive the sorry furnace. But if he does not, no matter what king, we are not going to bow to this image. And again, here we have Esther, who, who's done some things and has compromised in some ways and rationalized some things. And, and I have to wonder if maybe she thought, have I compromised too much? Have I removed myself from the story? I know many of us may be asking a similar question today. Have the things we've done, have the compromises we've made, have the the ways we've, we've deceived, the ways we've, we've knowingly lied, the ways we've, we've knowingly worked against the story, does that, does that remove us or disqualify us or sideline us from what God's doing? And there are some others of us who, who wonder, are there things that I haven't done that disqualify me from being a part of God's story, God's covenant. Many, many of the Jews in Susa were wondering the same question. Again, a lot of the faithful Jews left and went back home. But then there are some of these people who stayed in Susa in this life that they'd kind of grown accustomed to, and many of them wonder, like, am I still a part of Israel? Am I still a part of God's story? I know when I was in, when I was in seminary, I struggle with this idea of have I, have I not done enough? Uh, because many of my classmates were kids who had gone to Sunday school every week growing up, kids who had gone uh, to Christian school or have been religion majors or Christian college. I didn't do any of that. I was public school, didn't go to Sunday school. And I remember we had a quiz one day about something that happened in Genesis 22. And the, and the question was about, not about what happened in Genesis 22, but it was about, it was like a second layer question about something that was assumed you would know, and I didn't even know what happened in Genesis 22. And I remember feeling like, do I not even know enough? Uh, are there things that I haven't done that kind of disqualify, my, disqualify me from being able to serve in ministry? So there are some of us thinking who have done things that make us wonder if, if we're outside of, of how God can use us. There are some of us who haven't done some things that make us wonder if, if we're disqualified from what God's doing. But going back to the question, does Esther's compromise put her on the sideline of God's story? And the answer from Esther and from the entire story is clearly no. 
As we will see, you, are, you have already seen in the story, and we will see throughout the capital S story, that God continually uses marginalized and unqualified people. You look at life of Noah, Jacob, Judah, Rahab, Matthew, Daniel, Paul, you and me, all of us are underqualified. All of us have compromised. But these are the people that God uses in the story. And just a great, great quote from a guy named Mark Batterson that, that God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And again, that is the, the, stir, the story running throughout the story. And we see that in Esther. I think part of that is because Paul writes about uh, how, how God's power is made perfect in weakness. I think if, if the story moved forward based on our ability to never compromise, to always be qualified or overqualified, then the story would be, would be about us. It'd be about the, the things we've done. It would be about our strength. It would be about our obedience. But when we are weak and God uses us, it leaves no question whose strength is on display. It leaves no question who is driving the story, and that's God. And again, we will see this in Esther. And one last thought before we get back to the story. You know, Michael often talks about as long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. And that's not a, like, seeker-friendly tagline. It's something we really believe that that us as a, a worshiping body, we, we don't have it all together. Uh, we have made wrong decisions. We will. Uh, we are not the most qualified or the best, but we believe that God uses broken vessels like us, that God uses people who, uh, who are compromised and who are broken, um, and, and, and we see God's power displayed in that. And so the story you come from matters a lot less than the story you're trying to be a part of. Because again, all of our stories have, are riddled with things we, we, we did, we wish we didn't, or we didn't that we wish we did. But, but the story we brought into this gym today matters far less than the story we're trying to enter. And that's the story of Esther, but we'll get back to the story. Okay, so Esther is queen. She is queen, and some years go by um, from from the big party we talked about at the beginning. Some years have gone by, and the Persians are in this war with the Greeks. They're trying to invade Greece. If you've seen the movie 300, the Battle of Thermopylae, the Persians, Xerxes, trying to invade Greece, it's right around that same time. The war is not going particularly well. And I tell you this because Xerxes is not in a particularly good mood. He's, he's began to kind of remove himself uh, and, and has gotten extraordinarily cranky. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, but coming to, to Mordecai, Esther's father, essentially, uncle or father, uh, he, as I told you earlier, he hangs around the palace a lot, trying to encourage Esther. And one day he overhears that there are a couple of guys there who are trying to assassinate the king. Again, people are unhappy with his rule. There's an assassination plot. Mordecai goes to Esther and is like, Esther, you've got to tell the king this is going to happen. Esther tells the king the, the attempt is foiled, the plot is foiled, and then we read that uh, this man named Haman is celebrated. We don't know exactly why it was Haman and not Mordecai there, but we're introduced to this man Haman. And a little bit about Haman. You, we all know someone kind of like Haman. Haman has a very fragile ego. 
Haman, there's no better way to say it. He has a very fragile ego. So, so Haman gets recognized, and he is brought essentially to be the king's right-hand man. And the king knows that Haman has a fragile ego, and so he says, all right, we're going to make this decree. Anytime someone, anytime Haman walks past someone, they got to bow. Make Haman feel good, you know? And so Haman's walking around. Everyone's bowing except for Mordecai. Mordecai says, nah, not going to bow. And of course, Haman, man, Haman gets hot over this. Haman gets very mad, and he starts thinking about how he can get rid of this guy, Mordecai. And his first thought is, man, maybe we'll just, like, knock him off. But then uh, some commentators suggest, well, Haman, kind of fragile ego, that would seem beneath him. That would seem kind of small. So he comes up with with this idea anyways uh, that I know Mordecai's a Jew. I'm just going to annihilate all the Jews in the empire. So it looks like kind of this blanket thing, but in the end I'm getting my guy. And so Haman talks to the king, and again, the king's kind of whatever at this point. He's, he's sequestered himself. He's, he's hot and angry, and, and he kind of gives Haman the green light to do whatever he wants. So Haman makes this decree, and one of the ways he makes this decree is he rolls the dice, which is kind of a, a dehumanizing way to decide when the, the decree to kill all the Jews will happen. And so he rolls the dice. The dice are called pur, P-U-R in Hebrew. He rolls the dice, and turns out it'll be 11 months from then, but, but the decree is going to go out on the eve of Passover. And if you remember Passover from Exodus, um, there, that was another time where the Israelites were in great danger of total annihilation. And so the, the decree goes out. And so Mordecai catches wind of this decree, Mordecai hears bad things are coming down the road, and he goes to Esther, and he says, Esther, we got to do something. And we'll look at the verse here, um, Esther 4.14. So this is what Mordecai says to Esther. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But if you and your father's family, but you and your father's family will perish, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's maybe the most famous line from the book of Esther. For such a time as this. So again, Mordecai is saying, Esther, I trust that God will deliver us even if you remain silent, even if you do nothing. But maybe, just maybe, you were brought all, your whole life, all the messed up stuff that happened in your life, maybe it was bringing you here for this moment, for such a time as this. And I told you that, that the king had been sequestering himself. He had this policy that anyone who came into his chambers without being invited, if he didn't extend the scepter to you, if he didn't like tap you on the shoulder with his scepter, then you had to be killed. Again, he was in a, a bad headspace at this time. And so Esther is scared. Esther's nervous for her life that going to the king unannounced, again, she hadn't seen him for 30 days. Nick read that for us earlier. She hadn't seen seen him for 30 days, and so she's going to go risk her life to take this chance. And a lot of her life up to this point had been driven by self-preservation. Again, no parents. She's kind of had to do what she's had to do for much of her life. And here she is, not only risking her life, but risking her position, risking her stability, risking her security for such a time as this. And and one of the things 
that, that Mordecai says that we will go back to in that first verse is that deliverance from the Jews will arrive from another place. And what I love about that, yes, it's important what Esther does. She has this chance to be a part of God's story to rescue God's people. But Mordecai says, deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Mordecai's saying, hey, God's story is happening with or without you, with your voice or with your silence. The question is, do you want to be a part of, what's God, of what God is doing? Or will we have to wait for another? Mordecai is saying, you can hold these things in your hand. Like, if you've ever been to the, the beach and you pick up water when you're standing in the ocean uh, and, and it slowly trickles out of your hands, He's, Mordecai is saying, you can, you can hold these things, this, your security, your life, your station, your position. You can hold all those things as tight as you can, but they will slowly drip out of your hands. You and your family will perish. But Mordecai says, or... You can release these things back into the ocean. You can release your life, your, secure, your security, your position. You can release those things into God's story and trust that he will deliver. And that's the story, while, while few of us have entered into a, you know, a contest to become queen of a great empire, many of us wrestle with that same thing today as we struggle to be a part of God's story. These things we hold on to so tight. The invitation for us too is to release our lives, and again, not just our life and death, but our lives into God's story and see what God may do with it. Again, that's the invitation. The question, do you want to be a part of the story? Because the story's happening with or without us. And Esther steps into the story, despite her fears, Despite what she's putting on the line, she steps in. And we read about this in the next two verses. So Esther replies, Then Esther said to Mordecai, Go gather the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. Man, when I read that, I thought back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Back in Daniel, when they said, God is able to save us, but even if he does not, we're going to be a part of the story. And here's Esther's moment where she says, I'm going to do what God's leading me to do. If I perish, I perish. This is, this is her, even if he does not moment, where she has released her life into God's story. And so there we have, again, Esther, an orphan girl, the head of the most powerful nation on earth, about to rescue God's people. And this will not be the, the last time an unexpected person comes to the rescue of God's people. But that's coming later in the story. So I will wrap up the story. And this part I will have to abbreviate in a pretty major way. So I would encourage you to, to go read for full detail later. But basically, Esther arranges, she goes in to this meeting with the king. And she's scared. The king extends the scepter. She is allowed uh, to make her request. And she makes her request to have a banquet. Uh, and she invites not only the king, but also Haman. And some things transpire in the next few chapters where basically the tables are turned on Haman, uh, who issued this decree to kill all the Jews. And a, a new decree, Haman's deposed, a new decree comes out um, that allows the, the Jewish people to defend themselves. 
and Esther plays a part in rescuing God's people. And so the book is called Esther, and Esther does a lot of great things in the story. We've talked about some of those today. But really, the book of Esther is about God and the things that God does. And the ironic part of, of what I just said, the book of Esther being about God, is it's the only book in the Bible that does not mention God one time. Does not mention Lord, does not mention prayer. It mentions a fast. That's, that's about as religious as it gets. God is not mentioned, but throughout the book of Esther, we see God working behind the scenes. We see God working in little ways to move his, his story forward. And sometimes things get worse before they get better, but God is at work throughout the entire book of Esther, moving things. All these, these little things like Xerxes getting drunk at the party. If he didn't, he wouldn't have asked Vashti to, to come in, and Vashti would still be queen. Esther would never, would never have been made queen. Vashti saying no. I mean, there are a million little things that happened that played a part in God's people being rescued. And today, the, the Jewish people commemorate this deliverance from Haman's decree with a, a festival called Purim, P-U-R-I-M. And you may remember the dice that, that, that Haman rolled were called Pur. So Purim is the idea. And if you, if you went on Google and you searched Purim, P-U-R-I-M, you would see images of what looked like people dressed up for Halloween. A lot of people dressed in costume because that's how they celebrate Purim is everyone gets in a costume because, again, the idea is that God was working in disguise throughout this entire story of Esther. God was working in disguise throughout this entire story of Esther. And so when we look at Passover, remember this decree that Haman sent out went out on the eve of Passover. When we look at that and we think about how God saved the Israelites on Passover, plagues, parting of the Red Sea, pillars of flame, all these loud, visible, amazing miracles. And we see a mighty God there, but we see a God that is just as mighty at work in the book of Esther um, through these quiet invisible but just as mighty acts to bring about deliverance. And as we think about our own lives, uh, there are, I'm sure many of us can think of many ways that, that God has been working in disguise to care for us, to keep us as a part of God's story. And the amazing thing, I, I, I hope one day when we see God face to face, uh, He'll tell us all the ways we had no idea. All the ways God has been working in disguise in our lives, in our church, in our community. So I'll close with this question. Uh, where, how, and with whom has God positioned you? Because again, you, you are not queen of the Persian Empire. I don't think that's news to anyone. But you have been positioned with influence. You have been positioned with relationships, with people, with position. Wherever you are, where, how, and with whom has God positioned you? And how can, we, how can what we saw in the book of Esther today, how can we, we see a God working mightily behind the scenes? How can that give us courage to step forward and live out our role in such a time as this. Please pray with me. Lord,
many of us uh, struggle to see how someone like us can, can be a part of your story and could be someone that you love. Lord, help the, help the message of Esther, uh, one of the many reminders of the way you use people who are not perfect, people who have compromised in your story. And Lord, help us trust as we seek to be faithful in such a time as this, Lord. Help, help us be encouraged and strengthened by God in disguise, as we saw in the book of Esther. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.